Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the jazz session. I'm Jason Crane. The jazz session is brought to you by Matthew Rock, our first official sponsor. Matthew, thank you so much. Matthew pledged at the highest monthly level and therefore becomes an official sponsor of the show, and we will be mentioned and will be mentioned at the top of every single show. So thank you to Matthew Rock. The show is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Thanks also to new members Lars Johansson and Valentine Slachetka. And Valentine, I'm terribly sorry if I killed your last name, so uh, please do let me know. Thanks also to John Ryan, who became a member. It's, uh, it's great to have these new folks signing up. We are at, I think, 42 members, so we need 58 more. And there are 17 shows left, I think. So time is running out. We need a lot of people in the next few weeks if this thing is going to keep going. And uh, I hope it will. But that is determined solely by your decision to become a member. My thanks also to the Respect Sextet, who composed the theme music for this program. They're online at respectsextet.com. Thanks also to Dave Vrabel, who designed the Jazz Sessions logo, and who's online at twitter.com slash Dave Vrabel. My guest today is the trumpeter Taylor Haskins. He's had a couple new records in uh, the last couple of years, and we'll hear about them. Here's some music from the most recent one. My guest is uh, trumpeter, composer, keyboardist, melodica player, Taylor Haskins. Uh, thanks a lot for being on the show, man. Oh, thanks for having me, man. So uh, you've had two records within the last year. A Recombination is the new one, and American Dream preceded that. And uh, they're kind of these beautiful, like, Jekyll and Hyde looks at, uh, I guess, not only the state of the world, but how you view your your music within it. Um, so I thought maybe we could start... Uh, Talking about uh, recombination and uh, a little bit about some of the, I don't know, I guess maybe uh, philosophical underpinnings of it. I, I've mm. heard you say before that it, it was kind of a, an idealized view in many ways of how you wanted things to be or how, yeah. they, how they could be. Yeah, that's very true. Um, well, those two started... Uh, you know, as opposing projects in my mind, for sure. But the f the, the one that came first was recombination, uh, and because I'd focused so much on that aspect of it, I I felt that American Dream needed to happen. You know, that that was still in there, and I brought that out. But um, 
Yeah, the, there was no, you know, as I was writing the music, I don't think it was necessarily like a conscious thought in my head mm. as much as a feeling that I wanted to convey of like, uh, I guess, the, the feelings that I was having at the time, which was, you know, pre-Obama sort of anticipatory, like, okay, this whole Bush thing is almost over, you know, let's, let's hope that something better is going to happen, you know, and to try and envision what that means, uh, you know, what that change would mean to me internally and how that might affect my music if I let it, you know? Yeah, that's really, that's fascinating. I mean, kind of processing uh, these things that have nothing to do with music whatsoever, but have everything to do with the person who creates it Yeah, and seeing what effect yeah. that has. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I I feel like this, this whole thing, uh, music, uh, performance, composition, whatever we, you call what we do here, uh, is just self-exploration, you know, and and I personally feel like if you're not getting trying to get down to the bottom of that and trying to be honest with yourself and trying to put forth uh, what you know to be true about yourself, then it's kind of a wasted effort in a way, you know. I mean, you can you can you can talk about things outside the music, but it always has to be in reference to you because it is a personal art form, you know. Yeah. It's very much like. I've, I feel anyway that it's my voice, you know, coming out. It's not just like, it's not an instrument that I play. It's really me talking to people in a way. And so I want to be sure of what I'm saying. You know? Do you feel like it's, has it taken time to get to that place where you feel that your musical expression is a direct expression of you, of who you are? Was that something you had to acquire over time? Oh, definitely, yeah. Yeah, that, I think that's, that's like the hardest work as a musician, I think, because it, you really have to um, you really have to separate yourself from from any scene or from any concept of a scene even you know that that there's there's just a bunch of individuals getting together to create this thing we call music and if you don't acknowledge that aspect of it as well as the community aspect of it then you're missing a big part of it from, from my perspective anyway I think that gets lost on a lot of people because the, the the power of the community is so strong and it's so necessary that that can kind of overwhelm the individual on a lot of levels you know and so that's why a lot you see a lot of the same kind of music coming out of new york say or the same kind of music coming out of chicago say or la or whatever it is it's you know the that community thing is really powerful and it's really important but within that i think it's also important for the individuals to to self-reflect in a deep meaningful way to to, to sort of move the community idea forward do you find that you have to uh, will yourself to keep coming back to that to keep remembering that point as you write and as you play yeah totally because the the power of the the scene as it were is very strong you know it's like a magnet and i don't you know I, i'm not the kind of guy who goes out and you know hangs late at night every week and you know i'll go out and hear music a couple times a, a week and do it casually and you know zip in and zip out and i'm not really i don't feel like i'm part of any scene um, and so that's benefited me in that respect where I, it's kind of, I think, easier for me to, to self-reflect and, and see myself as an individual rather than buy into, you know, a, a generalized idea of what I should be doing or, or how I fit into something else. You know? Sure. It would be challenging for you to go out and see music given that you play like nine nights a week from what, <laughs> from what I can tell. Well, lately, yeah, <laughs> lately it's been like that. Yeah, yeah I, uh, as I was saying to you as we were coming up here, I go to places that I don't even know you're at and you're <laughs> you're playing. I, I don't know who's in the band. I, I'm taking out my phone because I emailed myself this thing that I wanted to uh, reference and I wanted to get it exact. Oh, cool. um, 
this is from your uh, with the, so how I how I knew I was going to like you as a person besides just liking you as a player is that when you go to people's websites, often the first thing you see, in addition to the obligatory picture of them, is uh, the obligatory pull quotes from four or five reviews. And this mm. is what you see when you go to Taylor Haskins website. The description is not the described. I can describe the mountain, but the description is not the mountain. And if you are caught up in the description, as most people are, then you will never see the mountain, which is a quote from Krishnamurti. Um, can you talk about why that's there and, and how that relates to what we're talking about? Hmm. Um, yeah, I, that's a big big question. I mean, the reason I put that quote there is it speaks to the unspeakable and to me. It, it speaks to something that it's it's kind of a the, the trap of humanity you know it's the trap of being a human of of thinking that what you see is truth and re- and that it's reality in its entirety and the, the to me the truth is that it's a part of a reality that we're not completely aware of and that you know it also means to me that i think underneath all that he's saying something about enlightenment and how Enlightenment is is really just a matter of admitting that you don't know anything and and really truly accepting that at every moment, you know, not believing what your eyes tell you, you know, Um, but processing that within yourself, you know, and and realizing for your own self what, what that is to you, and that's all it is. I know that sounds really kind of hippie-ish and out there, but to me... That's the only truths we can know are the ones, you know, it's pretty obvious. The only truths you can know are the ones that you're sure of internally, you know. And that's what he's saying, like, don't take anybody's word for anything. Don't, you know, words don't, don't apply to most things. I will really try hard not to derail this interview off into this metaphysical realm that I'm really <laughs> tempted to go to. But uh, I'm perfectly primed for you to say all that because I've been kind of overdosing on the work of Stephen Batchelor recently who mm. wrote a bunch of books about uh, Buddhism viewed from what he now describes as kind of a secular standpoint. And uh, one of the th- things that he said in there, which I had a, a, a knee-jerk negative reaction to, was that he believed – he can he can no more trust uh, although he believes that the things he like when he drops something it will fall toward the ground uh-huh. because of gravity mm. um, he he himself would be hard pressed to explain to someone why that's the case and so he finds that he is just as dependent on the unerring work of scientists as he felt at one point he was dependent on the unerring 
metaphysical visions of these gurus, mm. which I find is really interesting if we come back to what you just said and also how it relates to this idea of the individual versus the community. Like, how if, – if the internal truths are the things you're going to continue to try to come back to, it seems to make that idea of – not becoming subsumed by the community that much more important because I mean, what you're actually saying is that the only the only really true music I can make is music I'm myself sure of yeah. that seems like a really important place to put yourself but also a challenging place to yeah to put yourself yeah it is I mean I think that's for me musically speaking that's that's why I think of it that way I think it's a huge in a way it's a huge restriction you know, it seems like it's kind of a cop-out to be able to do whatever you want, but um, I treat it as a restriction, as like, uh, you know, honing everything down to that, you know. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to get there. That's the whole, you know, we know. Right. I'm <laughs> never going to get there, but I'm just keep going to keep honing and honing. Can you uh, can you talk about the, the people who are with you on Recombination? It's really a, a hell of a band. Yeah, it's um, Ben Maunder and on guitar and Henry Hay on keyboards and Todd Sekafus on bass and Nate Smith on drums. They're just, um, I don't think they've ever played together as a band before this. Uh, in fact, I know they haven't. Um, it's a very uh, eclectic lineup, I think. And I, I treated it like... Um, you know, like like tones. You know, I, I hear people's sound. And, you know, everybody has a tone, including drummers and whatnot. Uh, and I just uh, I heard each of their sounds um, individually in context of their own music being so um, definitive, you know, and so crucial to their music. And, and that told me that each of them is a, a player that's in tune with that. That's in tune with. The, the the tone that they're letting out the, the the core of their sound you know that they're in control of that and that's very intentional and that's something that I really I look for in players in general but I feel like in those guys it's just like it's something I admire for each one of them that I aspire to you know and I always like to play with people that brings me up to another level yeah you know? yeah I really love uh, everybody on here is fantastic but one thing that kept sticking out to me was Ben Maunders playing because he's he's such a chameleon I mean there's always Ben Maunder there but from one track to the next I mean he can be playing this beautiful fuzzy distorted you know kind of rockin' thing mm-hmm. and then this beautiful ethereal spacey line I mean he just always seems to be able to serve whatever the vision of that yeah of that tune he is. definitely does and then there's these moments I mean, that's what he's all about, I think. He, you know, I was thinking about this last night, and he must just be learning music all the time. I mean, he's, he plays in so many different contexts with so many different people. And yet, there's always a moment, every time I've ever seen, I'm sure you too, there's always a moment where you're like, oh, there's Ben. You know, like, when he's just like exactly. raging on some shoulder, and you're like, oh, there he is. Whereas the rest of the time, he's just like there for the music, you know, and like he knows when to... Want to let his his thing shine, you know, when it's appropriate for the music, and and it's not, actually, you know, I don't know that it's 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 pretty rare. I think it probably happens at most once a night, you know, that I've ever seen him play. But you know, he just knows how to how to fit within the context of anything and and make music. Yeah, it's pretty amazing.
given the fact that you hired these people specifically because of who they were and and the caliber of player, can you talk about what your role was in terms of facilitating the actual creation of the music either in the studio or leading up to? Yeah, it was just I just wrote it, and I wrote it with them with these guys in mind, and so that made I think it made it easier. Yeah, they they really yeah just nailed it. It was really really easy, I have to say. And, you know, I think that had a lot to do with my preparation beforehand, and, and that I wrote stuff that was really, here's your line, and here, there's no, you know, there's no, de- no debate. It's not like, what are we going to play solos on? It's like I knew what was going to happen. You know, I'd, I'd made demos of all this stuff in like electronic formats and with synthesizers and drum machines and stuff, and, and explored forms and different sound palettes and things like that. So I, and, and I toyed with the idea of doing something where it was when it remained in that world, you know, of drum machines where I added these guys on top of it, but then. In the end, I thought it'd be best to sort of take what I had done and translate it to these guys playing it. And so, because I think because I had these guys in mind the whole time, and because I honed it down to like a specific thing, it just came together really quickly. A couple of people I've talked to recently, I, Adam Rogers is one I can think of, uh, have mentioned part of the for them maybe the biggest challenge of composition is figuring out how to come up with improvised sections sec- sections that allow for improvisation that are coherent with all the composed stuff is yeah. that something for you that's a challenge oh or? definitely yeah and then more and more I, I i kind of eschew that whole thing i mean I'm, like more and more i'm like you know what let's just play the song like why do we need to develop it you know certain things like on american dream i, uh, I wrestled with it for a while with a couple of the songs in there um everlong and the, you know the covers mostly and and uh, the tom waits tune Especially the Tom Waits tune, I was like, "This song is so pretty. The changes are great. It'd be really fun to play over." And I just, I just resisted it because I was like, "This is this is Tom's song, you know, and this is how Tom played it. And if he wanted a solo section, he would have put it in there, you know." <laughs> and I just think more that more along the lines of that now. And I'll write a song, and then it's a complete song, and I'll, I won't really necessarily try and fit something in. Occasionally, I write something and think that you know, the, oh, this isn't something we're going to solo on, and then I'll I'll play it in a session, and people will be like, oh, you can take these two measures and make a whole development section out of that. You know, it's things I wouldn't have seen before. Sure. But um, yeah, it is definitely something I wrestle with all the time. I think that's that that's the the issue of being a jazz composer. I think you know, finding that balance, and it's a different balance for everybody.
is it helped to some degree by the fact that you have you have an entire musical life not dependent upon jazz whatever we're defining that as <laughs> today um does it does that help you to break out of the every tune needs to have development oh, yeah. and that whole thing yeah for sure yeah i mean it's it's i i have different i, I think i just have different paradigms in my head about about where i'm going where i'm coming from you know mm-hmm. i it having spent a lot of time studying commercial music like really studying how music works with image you know and, and the only time you really ever see that is in abstract video art or commercials and films you know right so and i've st- been studying all those things my wife is a video artist so she's gotten me into some christian marklay stuff and some some other people and just kind of investigating that whole concept of music being subservient to something else and and not only being subservient but also en- enabling uh, certain emotive aspects of something to come to the front, you know, and learning how to be in control of that. And that all that stuff is, it's stuff that you don't necessarily think about um, until you deal with music when, in, in relationship to, some, to something in the physical world or something in the visual world, you know, when you're writing for ballet or writing for a film or something like right. that, then, then you have to think about those things. And I think that just that right there has changed everything for me and i've been you know i've been doing this for 10 or 10 or 12 years now so it's becoming deeply ingrained you know coming out in different ways and when there's not a visual element to support do you find that the same uh, rules apply or the same theories apply yeah uh that's interesting i i kind of follow the same rules and you know it's not it's not not rules but i you know i, I kind of follow the same approaches now I, f- I feel like I've unified my approach, whereas you know it used to be that I had two different approaches for the things, and now I realize that, and that that's kind of where this music comes from too, recombination. I mean, it's really just uh, uh, trying to assimilate everything that I do and everything that I like, and I really do like making commercial music. I don't necessarily like listening to most of it, but I enjoy the process of whittling down something to its essence and figuring out what that one thing is gonna, you know, what's that one thing that's gonna catch somebody, you know. Um, and just, you know, applying that to the broader process that I've been going through since I was younger and started learning jazz, which is, you know, real improvisation and development and sure. that kind of thing. So really, you know, the dichotomy of the two is what I think what motivates me a lot of times, what what brings stuff out of me. I think the uh, the first Miles Davis record I owned was the 1974 live concert in Tokyo. And I think the second was on the corner. And that came out of listening to, like, King Crimson and Genesis and Yes and Rush and all that stuff. Yeah. And so I was reading some interview with you where I realized that we have fairly similar totally. <laughs> backgrounds in relation yeah. to those things. Totally, man. And, uh, My first two concerts were Genesis and Miles. Miles with Spyro Jarrah. And I was like, why is – I was like, why is uh, Miles the, the headliner? I was, like, so into Spyro Jarrah. That's awesome. <laughs> it was really funny. And he came out, and I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> now I get it. <laughs> yeah. No, I was blown away. That was a Tanglewood. Yeah. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. I'm from Lennox, actually. Oh, wow. That's okay. my hometown. So. There you go. Um, can you talk about what appeals to... We don't have to spend a ton of time on Miles, but what appeals to you about that, that era, that electric era? Yeah. Um, I think what, what I was just talking about is his kind of distilling everything that he'd done and... and I don't know. I guess you know. I, I never talked to the guy. I don't really know anybody that knew him, except for Dave, and I don't really know what he thinks about it. But I, I'm guessing that along the way, he 
had a, a similar thought process as to what I'm saying, and not for the same reasons, but a process of distillation of just, you know what, there's too much shit going on here. Let's try and figure out what I'm really trying to get at. You know, let's try and figure out what I want to say right now, you know. And it was different things at different times, you know. And you can see that. That's what really appealed to me. I mean, if you have to say, if I had to say one overall thing about Miles, it's just how, how willing he was to follow his own instincts. And they might seem like whims on the surface, but I really, you know, you get the sense from hearing the music itself that, like, that not, it's not just a whim, it's a conviction, you know. It's like, uh, it's, it's like, it was a constant, you know, look at his career, and it's like a, just a constant stream of change. It's pretty inspiring, you know. But the electric stuff, to me especially, is where he really started to condense everything. You know, he, he brought in elements of many other musics, you know. You know, you know the deal. <laughs> I could go on and on. But, you know, that's really what it is to me is, is a, uh, an approach. His approach to, and, you know, he's a jazz musician, whatever, you know, you can say whatever. But his approach to music, you know, it was like a holistic approach that not many, I mean, Herbie does that and, there are, there are a bunch of people. Wayne does that. You know, people that were influenced by Miles right. do that. <laughs> but there's not too many other people that really that really do do that in a in the true holistic sense of like anything's possible and this is all good. You know. Yeah, I, I may disagree with myself as soon as I say this, but it seems like it's an, an important instruction to Miles' career and especially that portion of it in uh, like ignoring the furor over things because you know now if Miles made that music today and played it anywhere in town right now, it would sound exactly like, except more Milesy, exactly like what's going on in a lot of yeah. New York right now. That's true. And at the time it was like, oh my, you know, it's it, the, the huge firestorm. And then like everything else just gets absorbed yeah. into what we do and eventually becomes part of our shared language and everything's okay eventually. It's, yeah. it's okay to use anything right. at some point. Yeah, that's yeah. true. That's true. Yeah, there's a real, there's like a, um, a point a threshold, you know, where somebody comes out with something, you know, like Demoiselle de Avignon or whatever, you know, uh, get up with it, whatever you want to say the the seminal thing is for that artist, and they they present it to the world. Or Rite of Spring is a good example. You present it to the world, and people go nuts. And I think the reason people go nuts when that happens is they they, on the whole, people don't know how to deal with honesty, like true, like straight up genuineness you know somebody actually being themselves and being a savage being you know being a an animal you know and like showing that side of themselves that shocks people and then people realize and, and you know the greatest artists use the trends of the time to 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 implement what they're what they're trying to get across and people see it at the time i think as trend you know it's like oh they're just playing into this thing and that combined with the what I was just saying, that, that guttural, like instinctual reaction, it's like it's powerful, and it it sends people reeling back for a minute. But at the same time, it hit them so hard that they have to look again, and then they go, "Wait, actually, he means that, you know? Right? <laughs> he didn't do it just to shock me, you know? Yeah." And then they reexamine, and you know, everything else falls by the wayside, and this is one thing remaining. And you're like, "Oh, actually, that was pretty important," you know? Yeah, it's interesting. It's really interesting.
you uh, unfortunately this will have passed by the time this show airs, but you're about to do the the CD release uh, show for this record. When you play this music live, do you adhere to that same idea of it's, it's okay just to play the song and we don't have to go on for 20 minutes on this? Time? Yeah, yeah, I have. Um, yeah, we've played you know say six or seven or eight times as a band. I mean, we've played more than that with different people, but as that band, sure. Uh, which makes a difference. Um, and the more we do that, the more it opens up, just naturally, you know, because everybody knows the music, they're not reading anymore. And then you start to hear possibilities and and you go with it. And the music's made for that, you know, it's sort of modular and you can kind of remain in one section longer than it was intended and it still works and you can make things shorter. And, you know, it's very easily manipulated and and played with but at the same time I, I, I do want to make sure that it doesn't get too far away from remaining a song you know because I, I am really interested in that in song form and and not in the, in the sense of being a slave to it but in the sense of, of possibilities that it can open up and and and, and remaining subservient to it in a, in a certain to a certain way to a certain level you know is that the, the kind of thing where you open up new ideas for yourself by imposing restrictions yeah absolutely yeah because if you're going to write a song then why why would you write a song and then go off for 10 minutes without relating to that song you know like even the best free improvisers you know if they're they're going off quote unquote going off for 10 minutes they're usually playing something related to the song if if only in in an energy way you know uh, as we mentioned earlier, you you play with a lot of different people uh, in addition to your own projects. What why do you think that is? What what do you think it is either about you or what makes you want to put yourself in different situations? Either. Well, I never wanted to. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't know. It, it, um, no, it's not true. I I came to New York for that reason because I knew there's just infinite variety of things happening. And I, when I came here, I really didn't know what I wanted to do, and I. You know, my early career speaks to that. I was like in played Broadway shows, I played the Big Apple Circus and you know, wedding bands and everything. You know, I've done everything a trumpet player could do. So since I've been here I feel like it's kind of evolved into what it is now. I mean I just because I started off when I came here doing so many different things, you know, I met a lot of different people in a lot of different circles. you know, I met people who were doing Broadway, who were doing Broadway shows then who were still doing Broadway shows and other things and I met people who were touring and are now doing Broadway shows and I met people who are, you know, teaching and are now playing with famous people and et cetera. You know, people, people evolve into different things. And I think it's just because I didn't know what I wanted to do when I came here <laughs> that I kind of floated around between a bunch of scenes and, um, yeah, I just became known as the guy who can do whatever you need done. Uh, you know, I could, I can play lead and I can solo and I'm happy to do neither to just play a part, you know, uh, yeah, I think that's part of it, but it's also just circumstantial, you know. The lead thing, especially, really, you know, Clark Terry told me he was like, "Don't tell people you play lead." <laughs> <'Cause> <laughs> what is that? Because you know, he he he's an amazing lead player, like amazing, well, probably one of the best lead lead players in history. But he he didn't he knew that if he started playing lead, he called for lead gigs, you know. Especially back then, it was like, you know, that was, you know, lead players played lead. We should define, by the way, what you're talking about. Lead trumpet, don't know, sorry. Right? Yeah. Which is, you know, playing the high notes and the the top voice of the, the chord voicings in the big band and and leading the band, essentially, you know, and it takes a lot of endurance and stamina and a lot of control. And, and you know, it's, it's a specialized thing, you know. So when people find out you can do that, 
you know, they hire you to do that because it's, you know, it's not easy to find somebody who does that and does it musically and is fun to work with and whatever, you know. And why would Clark or you not want to oh. let that out? <laughs> because of uh, the trap that I've gotten into, I think, you know, which is, uh, and I really enjoy it, so I, I haven't denied it. But, um, you know, I end up doing a lot of gigs where I get a little frustrated because I, I didn't get a solo all night and I am a soloist, you know. But I, you know, I enjoy playing the lead book too, so I can't complain. You know, I I, I play these gigs because I'm in, I'm into playing music and into playing the music of these people that hire me. Um, but you know, it can be a trap. That's why, because it, you know, people like I said, it's a specialized thing, and it's like playing, you know, you're a guitar player and you play ukulele, and you know, it's not too many people who play ukulele. If you play ukulele re- really well, they're going to start calling you for ukulele, and you'll be like, but I, I'm a guitar player. You right. know, that, that's happened to many people. You know. Yeah. And, you know, it can, it can change who you become, you know, and for me, I think it's, uh, I, I've remained cognizant of it the whole time and know I've had Clark's voice in my head, my whole career since he said that, <laughs> like, uh, should I just not be telling people that I'm, you know, but you know, the, the number of times that it's not pleasant to do that, it, you know, it's so few compared to the number of times where it's just a, an experience of being with friends and making music and. I dig that, you know, I, yeah. I went through college playing an orchestra and brass quintet and things like that. And, you know, I like playing music and it doesn't matter to me if it's playing lead or playing solos or whatever. In what context did Clark Terry tell you that? Um, I would think I was asking him advice about New York. I was, I think I asked him something like, you know, on the lines of like, you know, is there enough room for other, for new trumpet players to come into New York? And he was like, oh man, there's always room for good players. You know, I thought that, that was kind of shocking. I was expecting them to be like, I don't know, man, not much work around here, you know, honing in on my shit. But yeah, he was really, just really generous and open. He just started talking about the whole thing, and that was his one directive: just don't tell people you play lead. <laughs> it, he said, if you want a solo, don't tell people you play lead. So yeah. I've taken it to heart, but I haven't applied it, you know, hundred <laughs> <laughs> percent. Can you talk about, uh, in addition to your own stuff, some of the projects that you're involved in now? Um, yeah. Uh, started playing with Joel Harrison's Big Band, which is really interesting stuff. It's really uh, another bunch of uh, really eclectic players. I've just been doing a lot of large ensemble playing. Uh, there's a series at the Tea Lounge. I saw you there a couple times. That playing with J.C. Sanford and uh, Alan Ferber has an expanded ensemble, he calls it, which is music from his non-net. It's in, in a big band context, and um, Andrew Rathbun, and 
a lot of different things. And, you know, it's interesting. There's a lot of new big men music. And I, I wonder why that is. I know a lot of these people coming out of the BMI writers program. And I think that's been doing a lot of good. But um, there's a real resurgence of big band. Yeah, I've been noticing that since I came right? back here. Yeah, they're, yeah, they're everywhere. Yeah, yeah. I wonder why that is because it's like the, the least economically feasible yeah, it's crazy. thing. Yeah, <laughs> I heck? think I'll get twenty of my friends together and see if we can get a gig. Yeah, right? yeah. it's so hard. It's so much work, man. You know, I just wrote an arrangement for Los Guachos, and that's eleven pieces, and it's a simple little chorale. It's like like a minute and a half piece, and it you know it took me like. It took me like two or three hours to get it written down, and then like another two or three hours to like copy out parts and all that. You know, it's just that's eleven people, one short piece of music. You know, yeah, so much work, big band. But it's great that these people want to put the effort in, and and there's a lot of great music coming out. I think. So. Can you talk about uh, how you write? I, we're sitting in a room with a lot of keyboards. Do you tend to write at the keyboard? Do you write on paper on Sibelius or whatever? Do you in your I, head? Yeah, I usually write. Well, I usually don't start. You know, I, I fell into the trap a lot where you know because of what i do uh quote unquote work wise i I fell into the trap for a while of just like i'm gonna sit down and open the sequencer and open a piano sound and like try and write something and then that's so daunting like it's like putting down a blank piece of paper in front of you go (laughs) okay no you need to have a concept first you know before you sit down you know so i i started developing that practice of like Okay, let's not like sit at the piano and stare at the keys and see what pops out or like just play some chords and see what happens. I mean, occasionally that's useful, but more often I've I've reverted to sitting down with a concrete idea, even if it's just a drum beat or if it's a bass line or some melodic fragment or something, you know, even just a vague 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 idea. It's got to be something there that I'm going to try and sort out, you know, and that's a starting point. Yeah. And do you find yourself uh are you the kind of person who like carries a little recorder with you when you walk around yeah and definitely kind of yeah i have to do that yeah i lose i've lost so many <laughs> songs like complete songs you know it's, yeah here it is oh, there it goes you know <laughs> but it, it's it's anything that anything inspired you know like the keyboard thing you know sometimes i'll i will sit down and i'll just I'll say to myself i'm going to make an interesting sound on one of these synths here and that leads to something or you know, yeah something as random as that too have uh have keyboards always been a part of of what you've done musically? Yeah. Yeah, I was... I think one of the first really, truly inspiring things for me musically was seeing... Um, I don't remember if it was the video for Rocket or a video for another song on Rocket where Herbie's, like, sitting in this, like... I think it was a picture of him in an interview or something, and he's sitting, like... He seems like he's in, like, a recessed thing. He's, like, cut keyboards stacked up, like, you know, 15 feet high on all sides of him. And I was like, whoa, that looks really cool. Yeah. <laughs> and so I would, like, take my turntable and my boombox and whatever, my Casio keyboard and, like, set up a little thing and try and, like, play along with songs and, like, pretend I was Herbie, you know, when I was, like, 10 or 12 years old. And so, yeah, keyboards have always been fascinating to me. And I started on piano, so that's another reason for it. And now they're just... I I just they're just toys really, <laughs> you know they are real they're true instruments and I use them like that but I really have just so much fun with them. Yeah. So I mean that's why you have I mean I'm, this is I have many more than this that's why you see four synths <laughs> lying around here. <laughs> and somewhere there's like a storage container with fifty <laughs> exactly. more right <laughs> exactly down in the another bowl. house winds <laughs> <Exactly>. full. <laughs> oh, that's great.
do you have any idea? I mean, obviously this record has has just come out, but uh, are you uh, are you one of those people who's already looking to whatever the next oh yeah record's going to be? Yeah, yeah. I'm doing. The, I'm going to repeat the same process. Uh, I'm going to. I think I'm uh, going to be. I know I'm going to be recording in uh, the end of this month with um, almost the same band from American Dream. Um, with Jeff and Ben and Ben Street couldn't make it so it's going to be Kermit Driscoll but that'll be for Sunnyside and that'll be next okay. year and then hopefully in the fall or winter I've got like half of the next Recombination thing written already too because you know Recombination was recorded in 2009 right? and um, it's been a long time for me you know it's just coming out now it's really weird because that, that's been done for a while for me yeah. and it's exciting still but at the same time I'm like okay get it out get it out let me put the next one out right because <laughs> you know, I've moved on and I've kind of developed that concept a little further and uh, yeah I'm excited about that too so when people uh, uh, this, I, as I'm asking this question I realize it's meaningless but in any case uh, if people have a time machine and they go back in time and then are coming to see your CD release party will they be seeing some music that you've written for the next project as well yeah yeah there's at least one or two songs cool yeah. Yeah, oh, that's great. Um, my final question uh, is always the same for everybody, which is: uh, Can you talk about something you've read or seen or or heard, not directly connected to your own work, that you'd just like to share with other people? Doesn't have to be jazz related at all. Mm. Yeah, it's a tough one. There's so much going on right now. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. <laughs> um, I think you know what? I think the, the most interesting thing, you know. There's so much deception in the world right now on so many levels, and we can go into whatever subject, and you could take it from the, like, the most menial thing to the grandest thing and find people deceiving other people. But the most interesting thing was what we were just talking about before was the, the Martin Luther King thing. Yeah. I just I found that fascinating. Tell people what you're talking well, about. Well, there's, there's a quote um, going around Facebook and the Internet about um, murdering another human being and right, how the, won't take won't take pleasure in the death of another person. That, right, that exactly, be, yeah. and how yeah how righteous that is, and and it seems like the perfectly Martin Luther Kingy, you know. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I saw it in a couple of people's status updates. I was like, oh, that's a nice sentiment. Oh, interesting. And then turns out it's not him that said it. I, and then you know to have that be a cultural meme, and now it seems that that's going around. But then for people to not turn around and question other things, that to me is really, that's really the most fascinating thing I've seen in a long time. Yeah. I saw that, that thing keeps happening, you know, on, on, on these kind of menial levels too, you know, you kind of, you know, you, you find out something's corrupt, but it, it really doesn't matter. So you, you don't really look any further than that. But what people are missing, I think is the pattern. Right. You know, it's just interesting to me how it can be so in front of our eyes and at the same time just not a part of our thought process at all yeah know? yeah i mean that mlk thing uh, as we're speaking came out of the what just happened a few days ago the killing of osama bin laden and you know the in the new york times the next day the story was he had a gun he fired back he used his wife as a human shield and then the very next day in the very same paper on the very same page they say oh none of that was true yeah oops yeah, whoops. Yeah, I guess we shouldn't have printed that press release. Yeah. Yeah, we hadn't figured out our story yet. Sorry. <laughs> uh, yeah, that, that kind of thing. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm not one to, 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 to think that people are malevolent right off the bat. You know, I, I'll, I'll attribute that to just human error or, or whatever, you know. But 
the continuingness, you know, how it continues, <laughs> yeah. how it perseveres, and it permeates almost everything. Even the birth certificate thing, you know, like what if it was there, why wasn't it out a long time ago? <laughs> it's like just these things are really strange to me. I just I, I think we're we're coming into a new era of of um, I don't want to say people being asleep because it doesn't seem like people are asleep, but a, a new era of people kind of being willing to dismiss things as okay. Well, they said it, so. I, I don't want to hear about it anymore, so I'm going to accept that as truth. That's really a new thing. Yeah. Yeah, I wonder if to some degree people are overwhelmed if there's so much – I'm not sure if this is true or not, but it seems like there's so much access to information that to some degree it's, it is easier to accept yeah. like the popular story. Yeah. And to feel like what we were talking about at the beginning of this conversation, to feel like you validated it for yourself right. somehow by reading your news sources, you know? Yeah. Whereas, you know, we all know that we go to the news sources that reinforce our own views, you know? <laughs> so, of course, you're going to be able to find something that says what you want it to say. And, you know, it's just it's funny. It's yeah. funny. And, uh, yeah, really, there's really, you know, human nature is, is is bubbling up to the surface in all these areas, you know? Seeing human flaws in, in, in the most unexpected places, like places that we've really never seen them before. The, the White House usually has their shit together. <laughs> they usually don't say things and then say, oh, wait, no, but we, we meant this. Sorry. Right. <laughs> Strange. Uh, is there anything I didn't ask you about that you wanted to mention? Um, no, we covered a lot, man. All right. Yeah. Well, then I'll just uh, remind folks that my guest is Taylor Haskins, and uh, he's got two records out recently. Recombination is the most recent and American Dream, and both are uh, well worth your attention. It's been great to talk to you, man. Thanks very you much too. for coming on the show. Thanks, Jason.
That's music from Taylor Haskins. I'm Jason Crane. This is The Jazz Session, officially sponsored by Matthew Rock and presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. The show is online at thejazzsession.com, where you'll find links to download the show via iTunes. You can also stream and download all the episodes right there at thejazzsession.com. You can subscribe using an RSS reader. You can follow the show on Twitter, become a fan on Facebook, and all of those links are at thejazzsession.com. Thanks to everybody who's become a member recently. And remember, we need uh, more than 50, like 58 members in the next 17, 16 or 17 shows. So time is running out. Show 300 will be the final show if I can't get to 100 members by that point. So please do become a member. And if you're a member already, tell a friend, tweet about it, share it on Facebook, send it to your mailing list, whatever you think might work. Now get out there and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can and come back next time for another conversation about jazz on the Jazz Session. Bye. Bye.